Welcome to Gnostic Insights. My name is Dr. Sid Rop, and I'm your host. Welcome back to Gnostic Insights. This week I want to look at the book of Job from the Old Testament. The book of Job has always been a very troublesome book because in the book of Job, God is apparently arguing with Satan that in Christianity we think of as the devil over the fate of this man, Job, and whether if God would continue to smite him and his family, whether Job would continue to love and worship and fear God. So it's kind of a bargain that God is making with this character named Satan, apparently, over the fate of this man, basically torturing him to see if he can break him. Now, I have often said here on Gnostic Insights that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, also known as Jehovah in our modern translations, Yahweh is not the God above all gods, despite what he claims. We Gnostics believe that Yahweh of the Old Testament is actually a character that we call the Demiurge. And that the Demiurge is not the father above. The Demiurge is not the father of the Son. The Demiurge is not the father of Christ. The Demiurge is actually, according to Gnostic traditions, a fallen eon that fell from the Pleroma, because of overreaching and not doing what it was supposed to be doing. In Valentinian Gnosticism, we say that the eon that fell was named Logos, and that Logos mistook himself for the Pleroma of the Father, for the All, and Logos overreached his position, his station as an eon, and thought that he could all by himself plug back into the Father. But that was a mistake. That was the first instance of what we call ego. And ego is our will that arises from our own particular place and station. Our ego only serves ourself small s, self. In Sethian Gnosticism, they believe that the eon who fell is called Sophia, and it's a slightly different mythology, but it still has to do with overreaching and falling, and it's the fall that creates this material world. And when the eon fell, it broke apart, and what was left of the eon down below 
became what we call the demiurge or the creator. Demiurge is a word in Greek for creator. So this creator God of our material universe is a fallen eon, either named Logos or Sophia. In my opinion, the word Logos, which means knowledge and rationality and reasoning, and the word Sophia, which means wisdom and knowing the right thing to do in any circumstance. These are very similar words. I think that the Gnostic sects, one calling it Logos, one calling it Sophia, really it's probably, you know, it's the same notion that wisdom and reasoning and rationality, which comes directly from the God above all gods, the Father, overreached itself and decided on its own to do a thing. And that is ego, no longer part of the Father's will, but part of its own will. The book of Job from the Hebrews Old Testament, which has been adopted by the Christians because the Christians embrace both the New Testament, which tells the story of Jesus Christ, and the Old Testament, which tells the history and story of the Hebrews, they are both embraced by modern Christianity. And the God of the Old Testament is often thought to be a very different God than the Father as depicted by Christ in the New Testament. And yet, somehow this is overlooked. This is considered okay. But we know that the nature of God never changes. That is one of the principal characteristics of the Father, is that it is immutable. It doesn't change in response to conditions. So the father of the Old Testament ought to be exactly the same as the father of the New Testament. And I don't think that in the Old Testament, Yahweh refers to himself as the father. He refers to himself as God, the creator. So we're going to look at the book of Job, at the nature of the Old Testament God, and see if this comports with our notion of the Father, the God above all gods. Is Yahweh really the God above all gods? The story of Job goes this way. In the land of Uz, U-Z, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So that's how the story begins. Let us stipulate that it's all true. Let's not imagine that he really had private sin or that he wasn't really the greatest man. Let's just take it at face value that they say he was righteous, he loved God, and he shunned evil. Then it says that his sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. 
Early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Now, why would he do such a thing? Well, here's why. The Hebrews had already been instructed in Exodus 25 that they needed to make sacrifices on behalf of their children. In Exodus 25, it says, you must not bow down to them or worship them, these other gods, lesser gods, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God and will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. So Job was watching out very carefully for his children, and he made sacrifices on their behalf, just in case they weren't as observant as they needed to be, because he loved his children and he was taking care of them. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, that is, before Yahweh, and Satan also came with them. This word is usually translated as angels, but it actually is sons of God. Now, in Gnostic thought, we would call the sons of the Demiurge archons. That is, the offspring of the Demiurge is archons. So, Yahweh was talking with some archons, which in psychological terms, we would think of as divisions within ourselves, right? As sub-selves. This me versus that me, like talking to yourself. And Yahweh said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered Yahweh from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flock and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power. Now, let's pause for a minute and look at this idea of Satan. Satan is a Hebrew word and transferred to the English Bible untranslated from the original tongue. Satan, Satan, Satanus, it's a Hebrew word and it signifies, what it means is, an adversary, an enemy, an accuser. Satan is a Hebrew word that means accuser. It is not represented in the Old Testament as an entity. This idea that we have of Satan as a demon with the pitchfork and the horns or however you want to picture Satan, it doesn't come out of the Old Testament. At the time that Job was written, Satan only means an adversary. We could think of Satan as, for example, a prosecutor at court. What the prosecutor's job is, is to accuse the accused of whatever crime, and it's the job of the defense to 
argue against the accusations. That's what Satan means. So Satan is another word for an accusation. Satan isn't in and of itself an evil word or an evil creation because it turns out that even God himself can be termed a Satan in the Old Testament. For example, in Chronicles 21 and in 2 Samuel 24, Yahweh is compared to Satan. Here's how it works. In the book of Samuel, Yahweh is the agent in punishing Israel. Well, in First Chronicles, which actually presents the same exact story, this punishing agent is called Satan. So the very same force that is punishing Israel in both Chronicles and Samuel is on the one hand referred to as Satan and on the other hand referred to as Yahweh. So we can't say that Satan is a evil word or an evil creation in and of itself. Satan is merely the accusations. Here's what it says, for example. In 2 Samuel 24, 1, quote, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah, end quote. So the angel of God was a Satan to Balaam, as we have seen. And in this case, God proved a Satan to Israel. The same story written in a different book, 2 Samuel 24.1 says, Yahweh moved against Israel. The parallel account in 1 Chronicles 21 says that Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to take the number. So in one passage, it's God that does the provoking, and in the other passage, it's Satan that does the provoking. The only conclusion is that Yahweh acted as a Satan or adversary to David. And he did the same to Job by bringing the trials into his life so that Job said about Yahweh, with the strength of your hand, you oppose me. That's Job 30, 21. He also said in Job 9, 15, you are acting as a Satan against me. And that's what he was saying. Or speaking of God, I must appeal for mercy to my accuser, Satan. Job 9, 15. And by the way, I have again to thank Daniel McCoy's research at GnosticismExplained.org for that particular insight about what the word Satan means. So here is what happens in the book of Job. After the spirit of accusation came into Yahweh's mind concerning whether or not Job would remain faithful to him if all of these calamities arose, if everything that Yahweh had blessed Job with was taken from him. So it was kind of like a, a needling within Yahweh's own mind, a worrisome thought that he had. Well, I wonder what if. We often have those same kinds of thoughts, don't we? Remember, Yahweh, according to the Gnostic Bible, is egoic. He's nothing but ego. He's very much concerned about himself. And we'll, we'll see that later in the book of Job. But we are very much concerned about ourselves as well. 
in our own psyches. Our ego often has these kinds of accusatory thoughts against us, right? Oh, what if I'm not really up to that? Oh, what if something or other happens or this other thing happens? What if, what if all my whatever it goes? Like right now, we're in very uncertain times, are we not? So what if, um, what if my retirement account uh, goes in the toilet because the stock market crashes all the way? What am I going to do? These are accusatory thoughts. Maybe I should have handled my money better. This would be a similar type of accusatory thought as is coming right here with Job. So, so Yahweh decides that he'll try taking everything back and see if Job still loves him or fears him, as they like to say in the Old Testament. You see, the demiurge of the Old Testament does not know love. The Father above, the God above all gods, is consciousness and love. But when the eon fell and created our material universe, the best part of him returned to the Pleroma, and that included love. So what was left down below lacks love. It has a no remembrance of the Father or the Pleroma where it comes from. The Demiurge knows that things ought to be better. He doesn't like chaos. And because the Demiurge's own body was built upon the pattern or the architecture of the Pleroma, he has this inherent idea of order and hierarchical control. And in the same way that Logos put himself in charge of the hierarchy of the Pleroma mistakenly, just before the fall, and that was the fall of the ego of Logos, what's left down here below is entirely the ego of Logos. So the Demiurge does not work out of a place of love. This is why in the Old Testament, there's very little talk of love. And there's a lot of talk of fear. What Yahweh desires is obedience and fear. And if you would like to revisit one of our earlier episodes from a month or two ago concerning the nature of the Demiurge, there you will get a in-depth discussion of how it was that the Demiurge fell and how it is that an egoic God rules this material plane. I'll put the link to that episode in this podcast episode's link if you go to Gnostic Insights. Dot com. So, we already know that Job loves his family so much that he prays and sacrifices animals on their behalf. And the only reason they sacrifice the animals is because they were instructed to by Yahweh. It is not an inherent need to spill the blood of animals to take away our sins. That has been adopted by the Christians, and that is why they often portray the Christ as a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. But that's that's Yahweh talk. That's demiurgic talk. So, one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. 
and while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And then in Job 17, it goes on to say, While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, which of course you know means killed them, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are all dead. And I am the only one who escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So it's heresy now to think of Yahweh as doing wrong by slaughtering all of Job's servants, all of his animals, and his sons and daughters. This is not to be considered wrongdoing on the part of Jehovah. Hmm. Well, that is interesting. Why not? Well, this is the way Jehovah does business. And it says, On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. In other words, another accusatory niggling thought came into Yahweh's head. Then the Lord said to this accusatory thought, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's still blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil and still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life. So now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you. So the Lord did afflict Job with boils, painful sores, from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And his wife said to him, What, you're still maintaining your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die, she says. And he replies, You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God, but not trouble? And in all of this, Job still did not sin in what he said. So now Job's three best friends come to sit with him, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they heard about the troubles that had come upon him, and they came from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and to comfort him. Well, they saw him from a distance. They could hardly recognize him. They began to cry and weep, and they also tore their robes and sprinkled dirt on their heads. And they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one saying a word, because they saw how much he suffered. Then they commiserate back and forth. Many things, many days go by. And Job begins to wish he had never been born. He wishes he was a stillborn baby because then he wouldn't be suffering so. 
He thinks it's better to be dead and in the grave. For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. And his friend, Aliphaz, replies to him. Eliphaz comforts him by telling him to think about all the people he has helped and how his words, Job's words, have supported those who stumbled. And now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. It strikes you and you're dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? Eliphaz tells him, as I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Eliphaz says, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth, between dawn and dusk, they are broken to pieces, unnoticed. They perish forever. Then there are many more homilies like that, such as resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. Okay, returning to Eliphaz. So his first friend, Eliphaz, tries to give him these comforting sayings. And Job argues him back and wishes he were dead. And Bildad, friend number two, tells him to stop complaining that obviously his children must have sinned, and that is why they were killed. He says, when your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. So he's explaining this, not as a... Uh, injustice on the part of God, but as justice. But as justice. And Job argues back, uh, saying something along the lines of how can a mortal be righteous before God? That God, if he wished to dispute with him, the human wouldn't be able to answer him. No one can resist God and come out unscathed, he's saying. He continues to claim that he is blameless, and he has no concern for his own life. But he says, why does God destroy both the wicked and the blameless? And then Zophar pipes up and says, uh, will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak and that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom. For true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? And Job replies, despite what he's saying, that he, Job, is not inferior to Zophar. Basically, he's not being punished because of his iniquity. He says, I've become a laughingstock to my friends, though I called upon God and he answered. He is a laughingstock, though righteous and blameless. 
Men at ease have contempt for misfortune as the fate of those whose feet are slipping. So Job is saying, when you look upon another person's misery and misfortune, you tend to blame that person. But Job is maintaining his innocence. Job says to God, Grant me two things, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me, and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me, and I will answer, or let me speak, and you reply. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? And then there's a lot of talk about life and death. Too much for us to cover in this episode. His friend Aliphaz tells him to stop arguing with useless words and speeches that have no value. But you even undermine piety and hinder devotion to God. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not mine. Your own lips testify against you. So his friends are starting to turn from him. They don't like the fact that he is unrepentant and that he claims to be sinless still. <laughs> and Job replies, I've heard many things like these. Miserable comforters are you all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. His archers surround me without pity. He pierces my kidneys and spills my gall to the ground. He says, my spirit is broken. My days are cut short. The grave awaits me. Surely mockers surround me. My eyes must dwell on their hostility. And then Bildad, his friend, says, will you end these speeches? Be sensible and then we can talk. He talks about all of the things that have happened to Job. And he says, that men of the West are appalled at his fate. Men of the East are seized with horror. Surely such is the dwelling of an evil man, such is the place of one who knows not God. And Job replies, Why do you keep tormenting me with these words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. He's saying this to his friends. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. His friends continue to say that Job's rebuke against them dishonors them, and that this is all God's doing, that God will spit out the riches he has swallowed. God will make his stomach vomit them up. So his friends are really not being very helpful. And Job speaks back again. And they speak back again, and Job speaks back again, and there's a lot of misery. Misery everywhere. Just how many ways can you talk about torture and misery? The book just goes on and on and on. Chapter after chapter after chapter. And then finally, Yahweh speaks again. The Lord answered Job out of the midst of storm clouds. The Lord says to Job, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. 
Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, This far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place, that it may take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shapes like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their upraised arm is broken. Have you ever journeyed to the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? And on and on and on now, the Lord is speaking. You know, the Hebrews and the Christians believe that this boasting on the part of Yahweh is God revealing his greatness. But this is not greatness. This is ego. The greatness of the Father, the God above all gods, is immeasurable. It's beyond our material universe. It's not material. It is ethereal. Our Lord is an ethereal being. The Demiurge is the god of the material world. He's the guy, yeah. He's the creator of heavens and earth. He is the one who did all these things he claimed. He built the planets and the stars and this world that we live in. He doesn't remember the Father who actually brings life to the earth. He doesn't know the Holy Spirit. He doesn't know love. He certainly doesn't seem to know compassion or mercy. So now Yahweh is speaking to Job, and every single thing he says is along the lines I just read you. Everything he says is some sort of egoic boasting about what a good God he is. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread his wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command? The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And then Job answered the Lord, saying, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's that your voice can thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor, and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath, and look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. 
Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. The Lord says, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Then Yahweh begins to speak about the Leviathan that lives in the deep, which is a gigantic sea creature. And Yahweh is saying, can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Can you lay hand on him? Any hopes of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him, the Leviathan, is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Well, who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not fail to speak of his limbs, his strength, and his graceful form. Who can strip off his outer coat? Who would approach him with a bridle? And more and more and more and more and more. Nothing on earth is his equal, a creature without fear. He looks down upon all that are haughty. He is the king over all that are proud. So, Yahweh's pretty proud of this Leviathan he created. And Job replies to the Lord, I know you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So all of that egoic bragging on the part of Yahweh brought low this man, who we had already stipulated to be without sin at the very beginning. But Yahweh has managed to break him by killing everybody he knew and loved, by taking all of his cattle and servants, by shaming him in front of his community, by having his friends turn from him, by comparing the delicacy of a human to the great might of the Leviathan, Job finally says, okay, okay, you win. I repent in dust and ashes, even though he didn't feel that he was sinful. He is capitulating under the great pressure of Yahweh. And now here's the final chapter, the epilogue. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And so they did that. And after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. 
Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived a hundred and forty years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so he died old and full of years. Now, this seems so clearly to be the work of the Demiurge. This is the God of creation, yet he's the God of absolute power for power's sake. He controls our lives with strings of power. And those who do not know that that is Yahweh the Demiurge, those who believe that is Yahweh the Father, they are yoked to the religion of Yahweh or Jehovah. But we Gnostics do not believe that Jehovah is the God above all gods. We believe that when Jesus spoke of his loving Father, Abba God, Abba meaning Father, the God of love and compassion, the God of true justice, the God of virtue and righteousness, we are his children. We are resting in the love of God. We are not struggling against the wrath and the tricks of the Demiurge, who only wants fear. This is why Job is such a popular book. It teaches the fear of God, or else God's going to do you what he did to Job. Well, that is not the God of the Gnostics. The God of the Gnostics is the God above all gods, including Jehovah. He is the Father, the Father of Christ, the Father of Jesus, the Father of the eons of the Pleroma of God. We are their fruit. We are not the fruit of Yahweh. This is high, high heresy, people. Pray about it. Think on it. I find it very liberating in the direction of love to know that our God is loving. Our Father does not subject us to trials and tribulations. Our Father sends us help and assistance in the form of the Holy Spirit and the Christ. So take heart. This will have a happy ending. And if it's not happy yet, it's not the ending because we are all going to live happily ever after. So, remember to look onward and upward towards the Father, not back and down at your recriminations. Until next time, God bless.